Our sermon today is taken from Exodus 19. This is the word of God. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you, sh- you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord had spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and, t- and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Thus says the Lord. 
Amen. Thank you, Emily. So friends, we're continuing in our series uh, through the life of Moses, and so far we've gone through the book of Exodus. And if you've been with us for the past few months, weeks or months, uh, it seems like all the most popular stories in the Bible are in this book, right? You know, the Ten Plagues, the Red Sea, and now this Mount Sinai story. It's all in here, and, and, and rightly so, because these are important events. But I do think there is something about this particular Mount Sinai event, take from Exodus chapter 19, that makes it stand out above those other stories that I've mentioned earlier in the book of Exodus. Why? Because for the other stories, like the Ten Plagues and, and the Red Sea, those stories, the tension leading up to them has been building up since the beginning of the book of Exodus, right? When Israel was enslaved by Egypt, and the big question is, how is Israel going to be free? And those questions are answered by the Ten Plagues and, and the Red Sea. So, so it finds its fulfillment in those stories. But, but the tension for this particular event that we just read in Exodus chapter 19, Mount Sinai, God being in Mount Sinai, the tension and, and the question for this particular event has been building up way longer than just the beginning of Exodus. It's actually been building up and connected to something way back in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What do I mean? Well, if you go to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, what do you see? The Garden of Eden, right? Where God's presence resides. And most people know that. But what most people don't notice is the description of Eden's geographical situation. If you study it closely, you'll see that Eden was actually located on some kind of high ground or elevated hill or mountaintop. Where do we see that? Let me read to you Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided to become four rivers. So a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So the picture is that out of this place called Eden flowed a river or a stream that watered the garden. Now, now think about it. If water flowed out of Eden, gravity dictates that therefore Eden must have been located on some kind of higher ground, some kind of elevated ground because water flow, flows downhill, right? This is the theme actually in, in the Bible that God's presence in the Bible is, is often associated with places of higher altitude like Eden. Not, not that there's something mystical or super spiritual about higher altitudes. It's just a way for God to communicate that he is transcendent. He is God above all else, you see. He has authority. He is the one and the only king above all the creation. So when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3 and they were cast out of Eden, the, the picture here is that they were actually walking downhill away from Eden, descending away from this lofty, elevated mountaintop where God resides. And now, you fast forward to Exodus chapter 19 that we just read. What do we see? Another high and transcendent lofty mountaintop. Not Eden, but Mount Sinai. But like Eden, God again was present in this lofty mountaintop. You, you see the connection here? with Genesis 1 and 2. So the big question that Exodus chapter 19 is addressing is the big question that the whole Bible has been asking since Adam and Eve descended from Eden. And it's this. How in the world do we get back up? How do we get back up? 
Or as Psalm chapter 24, our confession of sin that we read out loud earlier, says, Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? How do we get back to God? That's the big question that we're all asking. And a little side note before I jump into the passage. If you're here today, and you're not particularly religious, you, you don't, you don't uh, count yourself as a religious person, we, you may say, well, of course religious people seek the transcendent. Of course religious people would seek God. But see, I'm not that religious. I don't really seek God. Well, let me, let me present to you a consideration that actually even non-religious people often seek the transcendent. How so? For example, when something bad happens and we say, you know, things should not be this way. Hitler shouldn't have killed all those people, for example. Okay, when we say things like that, things should not be this way. What's happening there is that we're admitting there is an objective, transcendent standard of how things should be, right? And how things are now is not living up to that transcendent, objective way of how things should be. Whether you're religious or not, if you say that, you're claiming that you have a, a transcendent ideal of how things should be, and life now is not living up to it. That's what you're saying when you say things shouldn't be this way, you see. Whether you're religious or not, when you say that, your frustration is actually based upon the transcendent. Another example. Say we're in a season of life where people are treating us badly. Uh, they're pushing down on you. Maybe we're messing up at work a lot, and our sense of self is crushed. And we want to comfort ourselves by saying things like what? We say, you know, what people say about me, what my performance review says about me, that is not who I am. Don't let those things define you. That is not who I am. We've experienced those moments, right? Think about it. When we say things like that, what we're actually saying is that there is a transcendent identity of who I am that what people say and what my boss says about me cannot touch. Do you see? There's a transcendent objective reality about who I am. Whether you're religious or not, if you say those things, you, you've been seeking the transcendent. We all do it, religious or not. We all seek the transcendent. Romans chapter 1 says, some suppress and deny that they do. First Kings chapter 18 says, some make up false gods to explain it. Exodus chapter 19 that we just read says, it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. It's the same God that your sins divorced you from in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's who your heart has been calling out to this whole time, whether you realize it or not. And now, in Exodus chapter 19, right, here's our chance. He's up on the mountain. We can finally ascend again to him. We can finally reconcile to the transcendent one in which we have been longing for, in which we have been divorced from. But how? That's the big question. Three things I want to point out from the passage. First point, the key to reconciliation Second point, the result of reconciliation. Third point, the one who reconciles. The key to reconciliation, the result of reconciliation, the one who reconciles. Let's go to the first point. Let's start at the beginning of the passage, okay? You see in verses 1 to 3, 
this, this question of who can ascend the holy mountain of God, who can get back to God, the tension is built up even more. Why? Because the people can't go up yet. Look at verse 2. Where were the people at? They were encamping at the wilderness below the mountain, right? So the tension builds up here. Only in verse 3, one person, Moses, goes up, not the people. Now, when Moses is, is up there, this is what God tells Moses. This is the key to reconciliation according to the Bible. Find it in verse 4 to 5a. When I say 5a, I mean the first half of verse 5. Okay? So right now we're just going to talk about verse 4 to verse 5a, the first half of verse 5. Um, verse 4 to 5a. God says to Moses, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Okay. This is how reconciliation happens. The first part... Verse 4, verse 4 says, the people must trust that God is indeed the powerful redeemer. Okay, look at verse 4. You yourself have seen, you, you, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Who I am, God is saying in verse 4, it's been exposed to your senses. You, you've seen it. So now, truly believe in it. Trust in what you've been exposed to, that indeed I am a trustworthy redeemer. The reader might think at this point, of course they trust it. Like, they've actually seen it, right? That they saw God do, do the ten plagues. They saw God split a stinking sea. Like, they, they've seen it. Of course they would trust and believe in God, right? Well, apparently, no. They haven't. Now, Remember, remember, ever since they were taken out of Egypt, all Israel has done is doubt God over and over again. They have not trusted God. Remember what happened in the Red Sea uh, when, when Pharaoh pursued Israel? Remember that? And they're about to get Israel. What did Israel do? Were they trusting God or were they doubting God? They were doubting God. They were waving their fists to the heavens saying, you did this. It's your fault we're in this position. They haven't trusted what they saw, right? That who God claims to be. And then literally, you skip over to one chapter later, verse, uh, I mean, Exodus chapter 16. Remember that whole episode when Israel was starving in the wilderness and God gave them bread and manna from heaven? But then God gave this command, if I give you bread this day, you have to finish it. You can't save any for the next day. That's kind of a weird request. What's the point of that? It's all about trust. I've, I've heard cases uh, in many orphanages kids who don't get consistent daily meals, they end up not finishing their dinners. They, they take some to their room, they put it under their beds, and they save for the next day. Why? Because they're, they're not sure if they're going to get food from the orphanage the next day. And, and even after they're adopted to good foster families, this habit continues. I've heard many foster parents say, trust me, I'm going to feed you again tomorrow. It's okay. You can finish your dinner. You don't have to save any but they just can't get out of the habit. I'll feed you again tomorrow. They, they have a hard time trusting. This is what Israel was doing. When they're saving that, that bread for the next day, that they're, they're doubting God. They're not trusting God. You see, over and over again, they've seen what God did, but they haven't trusted the Lord. And God is saying here in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, you've seen it. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You saw me do the ten plagues. You saw me split the sea. You've been exposed to it. Your senses have taken an information that I'm your powerful redeemer. 
but do you, do you really believe that I am who I claim to be? Because your actions so far has proven otherwise. The way I can know that you really trust me, I am indeed your most powerful redeemer, is, this is where verse 5a comes in, is if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's how I know you really trust me. How does one connect with the other? Okay, verse 4, I am your most trustworthy redeemer. Verse 5, therefore obey my commands. How does the two connect? Stick with me. I'm going to try and make this more vivid for us, okay? You see, what we see here is that faith logically trickles down. Faith logically trickles down. What do I mean? Here's an example. If you have faith in me, that I'm trustworthy enough to invest your $1 million in, my words in in how to invest your $1 million, I'm trustworthy for that. If you trust my words with such a big investment, you will, by logical necessity, also trust my words of how to invest $100 of your money. Right? That just makes sense. It makes no logical sense for you to say, yes, I trust you to invest a million dollars, but when it comes to $100, I don't trust you. Faith doesn't work like that. By logical necessity, it trickles down. If you trust me with a lot, then it will show by the way you trust me with a little. Another example, if you find me as trustworthy to babysit five of your children, okay, if you ever have five children, good luck. But if you do, and if you trust me in doing that, you will also, by logical necessity, trust me to take care of your one child. It, it makes no sense for you to say, I trust you with my five children, but when it comes to one, one child, I don't trust you. Faith doesn't work like that. It always trickles down. You see, if you don't trust me with the smaller matters in life, that may be a sign that you haven't actually trusted me with the bigger matters. Right? How can you say with a straight face, God, I trust you and your words about eternal redemption, and I trust you as a great redeemer, but I don't trust your words about how to run my business with integrity. You see the disconnect there? How can you say, God, I trust you about your words of eternal redemption. I trust you with my eternity, but I don't trust your words about how to conduct my sex life. How does that make sense? Isn't your career and your sex life matters of much smaller pedigree? compared to your eternal fate and redemption? You see the disconnect there? See, the key to reconciliation, here it is. The key to reconciliation is not just about being exposed to the good news that God is your redeemer. Just your senses being exposed to it like it is right now, your ears are hearing it. That's not the key. The key is that you truly believe he is your great redeemer. How do you know that you actually truly believe him in such a huge matter, it'll show by the way you keep God's words in all the other eras in your life. It, it connects. You can't do one with the other. That's why James in the New Testament said what? I'll show you my faith by my works. You'll see it, that it because faith logically trickles down, right? You're saved by faith alone. Verse 4, but true saving faith is never alone. It will always be accompanied by trust and obedience. Verse 5a. Okay, so God continues in our passage. 
if that has truly happened in your life, he's saying, if you here, you're sitting here today and you've truly trusted God as your utmost powerful ultimate redeemer, your savior, verse four, and it's been displayed, it's been shown by the way you actually live life now that you believe that, then if that's happened, then you will be to me, verse 5b, the second half of verse five, then you will be to me a treasure of possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, which leads us to our second point, the result of reconciliation. This is all I'm going to talk about in point number two, okay? Verse 5b, the second half of verse 5. There's so much to it. Okay, what do we see is the result of us being reconciled to God? First thing, the first thing there. God says, if you trust in me as a redeemer, um, you will be my treasured possession. Now, those are pretty affirming words, are they not? Here's the thing, though, about words of affirmation, and you, you know this to be true. The more qualified a person is in giving it, the more those words will stick. Right? For example, if you're an employee at a company and there's a brand new two-day intern that just joined and the intern sees you at work and he says, you are a valuable employee. And you go, thanks. Yes, That's nice to hear that from me. I really appreciate that. You would feel something in your heart. Now, imagine um, the head of your department comes to you, and he, he says, you are a valuable employee. It's the same words, but wouldn't it stick more? It would. It'd mean more. It'd have more weight to it. Why? Because the one saying it is in a higher level of authority, and therefore his words will, will stick more. It'll carry more weight. Now, imagine the CEO of the whole company calls you to their 50th you know, floor office, fancy schmancy, and says to you, you are a valuable employee. Oh my. Wouldn't those words stick even more? Right? Same words. Why does it stick even more? Because he is the utmost authority. His words carry most weight, right? Compared to everyone else. Who is God here described in verse 5? Who does he say he is? All the earth is mine. He's saying, I have most authority here. And if you trust me as your redeemer, I am declaring you a treasure. That's who you are. That's your identity. You're a treasure. The one with most authority said that about you. And you know, it's, isn't it funny? A declaration, a declaration like that from the utmost authority, it'll give you this strange power to be able to handle hurtful comments from other people who are at a lower authority. Back to the example. Okay, that the, the CEO office in the 50th floor you're just in, you know, he said you're a valuable employee. Wow. And you're on your way down with the escalator, and all of a sudden, there's, there's another intern that, that's riding upwards, and he just randomly screams from the escalator, You suck! And you're like, well, that's, that's kind of mean. <laughs> this company has weird interns, apparently. You might hear that, but see, you won't be crushed. You won't be crushed by the intern's words. Why won't you be crushed? Because you have just been declared valuable by the utmost authority. His words matter most. 
See, you have a sturdy inside now because the one with utmost authority has declared to be a treasure. See, your ego at this point, it's at rest. Your ego is at rest because you know who you are from the highest authority that exists, you see. Because of that, your ego, it's not barking back at people. It's not seeking to prove itself to the world. It's not using your career as a means to justify your worth. It's at rest. You know who you are. You know your value. You're a treasure. The one who you have trusted as Lord and Redeemer, the one who has utmost authority, has declared you to be a treasure. This is who you are. Now imagine, imagine a whole community filled with such people whose egos are at rest. You know what kind of community that'll be? Imagine what it'll be. It'll be distinct. It'll be set apart. It'll look different than all the other nations. Another way to say it is, as verse 5b says, it'll be a holy nation, which is one of the other results of reconciliation with God found in verse 5b. You'll be a holy nation. To be holy just means that you're distinct from other nations. You're set apart. There's something different about this community. There's something different about these people. And imagine that, a community filled with people who have faith in the Lord as their Redeemer, and because of that faith, they trust in the Lord in all other areas in life, and they're living obediently to his commands, and also, they know their worth. They know who they are. The Lord has called me a treasure, so their egos are at rest. They're not trying to one-up one another all the time. They're not trying to compete with one another all the time. They're not jealous when other people do well. Come on, we all do that. We're not secretly happy when other people do poorly. Can you imagine a community like that? With no ego, just worrying about obeying the Lord. Oh my, is that not a distinct, set-apart, holy community that does not look like the world? Absolutely. And you know what that community will do? A community like that will be a kingdom of priests, which is the other result of reconciliation given here in verse 5b. Priests in the Old Testament are are people who mediate between others and God. Okay, They're people who call others to God's presence. Now imagine a community, again, filled with people who are obedient to God's words, who love each other in a way that the world doesn't, whose egos are at rest. You know what kind of what that kind of community will do, it'll lure others to God. Because the world will look at you and say, they're loving each other in a way that makes no sense to me. They're obeying God even when it's costly to them. They seem to have very little ego. What's what's going on? What made them like that? And hopefully it will lure them to the very God that redeemed this community. That's how God's people will win the world to Christ. Now, it's so countercultural, isn't it? Especially in our culture in, in, in Jakarta, maybe in Indonesia. A lot of people h- here think, I think, they think, that the way we are going to lure others to Christ is by the size of our combined assets. I, I think that we think, Christians think, the success of our business empires, the size of our net worth, We think things like that is what's going to lure others to the Redeemer. Let me just speak into that for a little bit. You know these three descriptions of God's people in verse 5b that we just read? 
a treasure, a, 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 a priesthood, and a holy nation. These three things was also used in the New Testament uh, by Peter in the book of 1 Peter to describe Christians. Here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, talking to Christians at this point, but you are a chosen race, a holy, uh, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. The same three things in Exodus. You are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But what's interesting about the church in First Peter, in, in Peter's time, it was not filled with rich people. It wasn't filled with powerful people in the government. No, nothing like that. The church at the time was being persecuted. We, we just went through a series in First Peter, you remember? They were being exiled. They were weak. They held no power in the community. They had no business empires. They had no net worth. Peter is telling them it does not matter. It doesn't matter. Ours is a kingdom of meekness, not worldly power. Ours is a kingdom of faithfulness, not productivity. Ours is a kingdom of sacrifice, not gain. Ours is a kingdom of humility, not ego. We will be a kingdom of priests and lure others to the Redeemer, not by impressing them with our net worth. That will not do a single thing. I promise you that. And the people who are lured to church because of that is not lured to church because of the Redeemer. The way we will lure the world to Christ is by obeying his commands, even when it's sacrificial, trusting in his words, his words, including the ones that call you his treasure. If you do that as a community, you will be a holy nation, set apart, distinct, and in your distinctness, lure others to him, fulfilling your priestly duty. That's it. Now, how did Israel respond to all this? Okay, so Israel heard all of this, verses 1 to 7, and they responded in verse 8 with what? A loud resounding amen, right? Verse 8, they all said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So everything seems to be going well so far in the story, except for one really, really big issue. What issue? Well, the big question that the Bible has been asking from Genesis chapter 3, ever since we descended from the mountaintop, it's still unanswered. Because Israel, this whole time, where are they? they? They're still at the bottom of the mountain. God, you're talking all this talk about reconciliation, about a covenant relationship. That, that's great. Can we come up now? Is it time to come up? It sounds like you're finally about to call us back up and reconcile with you. Which leads us to our last point. Point three. The one who reconciles. Now, you'll find it funny. For the rest of the story, when you read it, you'll see God kind of playing this game of push and pull. Okay? Let's read it. Verse 10 to 13. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai on the side of all the people, and you shall set limits on the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they shall come up to the mountain, when the trumpet happened in three days. 
It's a little confusing because, you know, this long-awaited worship uh, time, they're finally there. They're at this mountain where the Lord says they can now finally uh, uh, worship and reconcile with him. But yet, once they got there, the Lord kept them at arm's length. That's kind of weird. I can't touch the mountain? Okay, fine. But at least in three days, the trumpet is going to sound. And then when, when the trumpet sounds, then we can ascend back to God's holy hill. Then we can come back to you and reconcile with you, right? Okay. Then three days passes by. Go to verse 16 to 19. On the morning of the third day, there are thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Here it is, we think. The trumpet is here. Okay. And all the people trembled. And, and Moses brought the people to the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They're all ready to go. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord has descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And here we're thinking, this is it. This is the time. Finally, the tension from Genesis chapter 3. How? When are we going to come back up? How are we going to come back up? This is it. It's been three days. The trumpet has sounded. Surely I can come up. But then, in verse 21, the Lord again held them at arm's length. Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and look, and many of them perish. And at this point, if you're reading this passage, and you're actually in, in the story, at this point, you're just throwing your hands up in the air, and you're just saying, what in the world is going on? It's like, you know, you're hot and you're cold, you're yes and you're no. Was that the Jonas Brothers? Right? It's like, there's this, like, there's this push and pull, like, at... Do you want me or not? Get to the point. And Moses felt that too. Verse 23. You know, Moses said to the Lord, uh, the people cannot come up. After God said, don't let them come up. He said, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us, saying set limits around the mountain. You already told us this. (laughs) Why are you telling us again? What's the point of this? And here it is. We thought this was the moment we were going to ascend. But here's what we learned. It's unbelievably important. We learned this whole time of the ultimate main reason of why Israel can't come up the mountain. We thought, see, this whole time, we thought it was Egypt. We thought Egypt was a problem. We thought if they were freed from Egypt, they're going to be free to ascend back to this mountain. But now we see the problem isn't Egypt. The problem is what? It's their sin. That's the problem. That's what God's trying to communicate here. That's why God told them, you can't come up, you got to wash your garments, your clothes, for three whole days. You can't, because you can't come to me, you're tarnished by sin. By the way, remember God showed up as fire in another time in the Bible? Exodus chapter 3. Remember he showed as fire in the unburning bush to Moses? Remember what God said to Moses? Fire. God says, come here, Moses. Moses was on its way there his way there, and then God said, stop, first you must what? Take off your sandals. You see the similarity here? Come here and worship, and we're coming. God says, nope, wash your clothes. Here I am, come to worship, stop, take off your sandals. What's he trying to communicate? He's trying to tell us that we, in our sin, cannot just come up to God. We'd be consumed like a spiderweb that came in contact with the sun. That's what God is saying. Don't let the people touch the mountain or else they'll die. You see, a few things God can't do. Is it orthodox to say that? Absolutely. There are a few things God cannot do. God, by definition, as being God, he cannot die. Right? 
That's, that's logical. God, because he is God, he cannot uh, cease to exist. God, because he is God, he cannot uh, be weak. He's always all-powerful. God, because he is God, he cannot grow up. We as humans, we grow up. But God cannot grow up. That's logically makes... No, if he is God, those things... There are a lot of things God cannot do. You know something else God cannot do? God cannot be with sin. If God comes in contact with sin, they touch the mountain, they'll perish. God can't be with sin. That's why he reveals himself in this scary way. Jakarta, right? We get a lot of thunderstorms, do we not? We get a lot of monsoons, right? So we can imagine what being in a thunderstorm feels like. Imagine this is what Israel was experiencing. You're in the largest thunderstorm you've ever been in. And on top of that, there's a huge forest fire burning on top of the mountain right in front of you so big that a thick smoke rises, and then there's an earthquake that shook the mountain. And then on top of all that, there's a deafening trumpet sound that gets louder and louder and louder by the second that you are asking to, for it to stop. It's so loud. Some might even say that the, the sound of this trumpet sound was so loud, it contributed to the shaking of the ground like, like a jet when it flies too low to the ground, it kind of shakes it. You see how God's revealing himself here? He's, he's telling us, if you come to me with your sin, you'll be swallowed up by all of this. Do not touch the mountain. So then, you know, is all hope lost? Who can ascend the holy hill of God? Our confession of sin says. Who can do that? Psalm 24, our confession of sin says. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, only if you're sinless can you ascend. Only then can you touch it, can you go up to God. But who has clean hands? Who is sinless? Who has a pure heart? No one. Israel washed their clothes for three stinking days. That's not enough. They even added some pretty extreme rules. Look at verse 15. They said, husband and wives, you have to abstain from sex. It's like, what? That's weird. I know, but we're going to do any, I don't know why. We're just going to do extreme stuff. We'll do the most extreme thing we can think about so that we can ascend and somehow make us holy even that wasn't enough. Nothing is enough. You cannot ascend the hill of God. And at this point of seeming hopelessness, we are presented, if you read carefully, you're presented with an amazing, shocking sight. Look at the last verse, verse 25. No one can come up, and all of a sudden we see God's mediator, Moses, doing what? Coming down the mountain. Now, the Israelites would not have known what this is about. They wouldn't have fully appreciated it. But we do know what it's about, don't we? Through this image, God is giving us an answer to that question. Who can ascend the holy hill of God? And the answer is no one. The answer is that my plan has always been to come down to you. That's always been the plan. You know, in the Old Testament, every time God's presence appears, it's rather scary. Exodus 3, the fire. Exodus 14, the pillar of cloud and fire. Exodus 19, the earthquake, right? The firestorm we just saw. Isaiah chapter 6, if you read it, there's another earthquake. Whenever God shows up in the Old Testament, it's this scary experience. But in the New Testament, God's presence was the opposite of scary. God came to us in the form of what? A weak baby. His name was Jesus, which in the Bible says 
Emmanuel, God, with us. And it's interesting, when people touched him, they didn't perish. They were healed. They got better. They rose from the dead. Why? Why didn't they perish? Why weren't they swallowed up by all this fire, thunder, and earthquaking wrath that we see here in Exodus chapter 19? Why? Because the Bible claims on that cross, all the fire, thunder, and wrath, it fell upon Jesus. Jesus was shook to the core so that you can have a righteousness that is unshakable. See, here we see the core difference between Christianity and every other world religion, at least in its claims in its holy books. Other religions will give you instructions and commands of how to, here are the ways, here are the steps of how you can ascend back to God's holy hill. Christianity is the only religion that says, no, no, God descends to you. You can't do it on your own. You cannot be righteous on your own. He will come back to you. That's been the plan all along. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Don't you see? When God said you are his treasure, look at the cross. He meant it. He meant it. Look at what he gave up. Does your ego not find itself sighing a sigh of relief? I know who I am. I don't need to prove it by my job anymore. I don't need to prove it by my social status anymore. He's declared me a treasure. Look at the cross. And if you trust in what you've been exposed to just now, it should, in a way, make you trust him as utmost redeemer and will you not then trust him in every other area in life? And if we as a community trust in him, obey him in every other areas in life because he is our redeemer, not to earn our way back to him, but because he has come down to us, if we do that, will we not be a distinct group of people who, who the world look at, what is going on? They're obeying God when it's, when it's hard for them. They don't want to one-up one another. They have this robust sense of self. We will lure others to the cross, to the very cross that changed us, and by doing so, fulfilling our duty as a kingdom of priests. We will. We will. So, let me close. You've been exposed to the gospel just now. Your senses have taken it in. But remember, just being exposed to it, it's not the key. The key is if you believe it, do you rest in it? Do you trust it? Do you, do you accept it? Are you moving from saying he is a redeemer to saying he is my redeemer? Are you moving from saying he can redeem to he has redeemed me? That's where it all starts. That's when your ego will finally find a place of rest. That's when you stop living your life trying to prove yourself to the world you don't need to anymore. You know who you are. You know who you are. Believe in it. Be obedient to him. Trust him in every other area because he's, you've trusted him with the eternal. It makes sense for you to trust him in every, everything else. Love each other in a way that the world cannot make sense of and lead 
the rest of this world back to the Savior who changed you when he died on that cross and descended so that you may be with him. Let's pray. What a bizarre, counterintuitive truth claim that our God, the King of Kings, would leave his throne and come down to be with sinful us. It makes no sense. I pray, Father, that your spirit would make it real in the hearts of those who are here. The fancy words of a preacher can never change hearts. I beg you that you would come down and show yourself real by the truth in your word. Be made vivid to the hearts of those who are here who have heard that you indeed have come down, that you indeed treasure your people, that ours is a kingdom of meekness displayed in the way that he, the most powerful being in the universe, came down and died for his people. This is our worldview. This is how we live our lives. Make it real as we sing the song of response about the man of sorrows who gave up himself for us. In his name alone we pray. Amen.